Good evening and welcome to Trump versus Biden, a Latrobe Asia webinar presented in collaboration with Perth US, US Asia Centre. My name is Beck Strading. I'm the Executive Director of Latrobe Asia at Latrobe University in Melbourne, Australia. I would like to begin the event by acknowledging the elders of the Wurundjeri people who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which Latrobe University sits. I would also like to pay respect to their people, both past and present, and extend that respect to any Indigenous Australians who might be watching this webinar. Tonight, we will be considering the US election and implications for Asia. And what a week it has been in US politics. Uh, the 2020 contest between the incumbent Republican President Donald Trump uh, and his Democrat challenger Joe Biden has been a wild ride so far. Of course, this election comes at the tail end of a challenging year for the United States with sadly over 200,000 deaths from COVID-19, a struggling economy and protests spreading across the streets of US cities. Last week, the debate between the presidential candidates descended into chaos and was followed two days later with the explosive news that President Trump himself had contracted <coughs> COVID-19, throwing a whole other layer of doubt upon the elections and the outcome. I don't think it is an exaggeration to say that this is one of, if not the most important election in US history, with the very democratic character of the world's most powerful nation at stake. The outcome of the 2020 US election is likely to have wide reaching international ramifications. And in the Indo-Pacific region, the People's Republic of China has increasingly asserted its stake in the South China Sea, North Korea has stepped back into the international spotlight and even India is flexing its military muscles at borders in every direction. So the outcome of the election will likely shape US-Asian relations for many years to come. So what might Asia expect from four more years of a Trump presidency? And what does a Biden presidency promise for Asia in contrast? Or will the nations of Asia find strength in pursuing greater strategic autonomy? Now, here with me to unpack these complex and crucial questions is our expert panel. First, let me introduce Frank Lavin, who is Zooming in this afternoon from Singapore. Frank has had a distinguished career in business and policy across Asia. He is a former White House political director, as well as a former US ambassador to Singapore and Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade. Welcome, Frank. It's great to have you here this afternoon. Thanks, Beck. Glad to be here. We also welcome with us this afternoon a very good friend of La Trobe Asia, Professor Gordon Flake. Gordon is one of Australia's leading experts on the Indo-Pacific and the founding chief executive officer of the Perth US Asia Centre, which of course has co-organised tonight's event. It's great to have you with us on the panel this evening, Gordon. It is my great honour and our great pleasure to collaborate on this. Thank you. Now we do have a uh, final panellist. Uh, it's uh, Kei Jung Jin, Kei Young Jin Song who is coming to us from Seoul. Unfortunately, KJ hasn't been able to quite log on, uh, but we're hoping that she'll be able to make it um, later on in the session. Uh, she is the director of the FN Global Issues Centre and has served the government of the Republic of Korea in a wide range of capacities, including as a special advisor on the Seoul G20 Summit. There will be opportunities in the second half of this event to ask our expert panel your questions, and we will be using uh, the Zoom Q&A function this afternoon. Now, normally Latrobe Asia events, we use Slido, but we have decided to go uh, with the Q&A function, which you should see towards the bottom of your screen. And if you have any problems uh, trying to put your question into that function, please do email the Latrobe Asia team at asia at latrobe.edu.au. Now we have a lot to cover, so let's get into it. And I'm going to start, Gordon, with you. Uh, now we know that, as I said before, the US election, the campaign so far has been an extraordinarily wild ride. Uh, but let's sort of start with the theme of this event. Uh, what does the US election 
mean? Why does it matter for Asian states, for Asian economies and for, and for their societies? Well, thank you again, Beck. And it's, it's a great honor to work with you and your colleagues on this. Uh, we think the world of Latrobe Asia. And so it's obviously uh, a, a no-brainer for us to decide to collaborate. And let me start by also particularly thanking my, now I says old in terms of years that I've known him, friend Frank Lavin for, for joining us. It's, it's a great honor. Um, I could go on for hours just about the last 24 minutes of, of developments out of Washington, D.C. But I think the topic that you've given us is much better framed by something that happened yesterday in Japan. Uh, and that is uh, the you know, foreign ministers level meeting of the quadrilateral dialogue. Um, so despite all the drama that you're seeing in the White House, uh, what you're seeing there in the quadrilateral dialogue actually does kind of more crystallize what is important for Australia, what's important for India, what's important for Japan, and what's important for the United States and the region. Um, and it does give you a very different view. What I would note about that, which is quite interesting, is that the quadrilateral dialogue, particularly as we saw it yesterday, which was remarkable in terms of form and function, was driven primarily not out of Washington, D.C., but driven primarily out of different assessments coming out of India, uh, particularly after the, the clashes with China in the Galwan Valley last year in the Doklam area, driven by assessments coming out of Australia, out of their concerns, um, you know, of an ongoing trade dispute with China and driven out of Japanese leadership. Uh, and so I think all of them were relieved to have uh, Secretary Pompeo there. All of them were happy to have this going forward. But in many respects, I thought that quad meeting represented more um, a, you know, a more of a Chinese failure in the region than it did a particular American success. And so this was really much more of a reaction to develops in the region. The last point I'm going to make that's going to hopefully set the framework for this discussion is that here in Australia, our kind of buzzword for foreign policy for a long time has been rules-based order, rules-based order. Uh, and, and Australia's particular uh, strategy for, for the last 30, 40 years has been to be strongly supportive of multilateral efforts, of regional organizations, of, of systems, structures, institutions, and norms in the region, and then working actively to get the United States into those organizations and supportive of those organizations. And so the quad that we saw yesterday, just one more example of that, where Australia, along with India and Japan, saw the benefit of having the United States engaged in this region and, and, and worked hard to make that so, despite the distractions going on in Washington, D.C. right now. Now, in that context, you know, the question you're asking to frame this is, what does the election mean for this? And if, and if I'm really blunt, although Asia has been relatively less impacted than, say, the transatlantic relationship, where the current administration in Washington, D.C., particularly President Trump personally, has been deeply antagonistic towards alliances, towards NATO, towards the EU, towards anything multilateral. You know, in general, Australia has gotten off pretty well. It has been kind of a gold star ally. We've managed to, to avoid the ire. Uh, South Korea, and if KJ comes on, she'll tell us about some of the difficulties they've had on the financial issues. But Japan has also gotten off very well. This region generally, other than the trade dispute with China, has not been a focus of this president, uh, with several very important uh, exceptions. The decision of the Trump administration on day one of the administration to withdraw from the Trans-Pacific Partnership was a major blow to how we organize economic activity in this region, activity in this region, to Australia's priorities, to Japan's priorities. And so I think one of the most underappreciated stories of the last four years was the miraculous effort on the part of Japan and Australia to resuscitate the Trans-Pacific Partnership in the form of the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for the Trans-Pacific Partnership, CPTPP, um, and holding the line there on multilateralism. So obviously, if President Biden would be elected, the number one thing he would do was, was stop the ongoing antagonism towards alliances writ large, but more importantly, the, the more overt antagonism towards multilateralism, international organizations, international regimes, international law. Uh, and even though he may not be able to just completely restore all those things they were in the past, 
at the beginning, he would staunch the, you know, the, the current damage. And I anticipate that if you look at the people who are supporting him, he would be much more uh, in sync with not just Australia's priorities for the region, uh, but for those of our other partners and allies in this region. So hopefully that begins to frame the discussion. A bit of a ramble on there. but Well, I, I, I would like to hear um, Frank's sort of response to that, but I might uh, just ask you a follow-up, uh, if I can, Gordon, on, on some of the things that you said there. The first is I'm wondering whether you see um, the Trump administration as when it comes to alliances in East Asia as being kind of more to do with the optics and the rhetoric rather than uh, a substantial change in the way that US has approached these alliances uh, in foreign and defence policy uh, in East Asia. That's the first part. And the second is, with Biden, can we expect that he will adopt uh, an Obama-style uh, sort of approach to uh, East Asia or to the Indo-Pacific more broadly? Or do you see his approach being different from Obama? Because there were some sort of weaknesses uh, with the Obama administration's approach, particularly in relation to the rise of China. The reason I decided to, to start with yesterday's Quad meeting is because that really was not a Trump initiative. No, it wasn't an Obama initiative. It's something that was very proactive in, in the, the George W. Bush administration. And when it comes to U.S. engagement with allies in this region, they really are not partisan. Traditionally, they have not been. And so, the, you know, despite the fact that a lot was made during the Obama administration about a pivot towards Asia or rebalance towards Asia, there was far more continuity than change in terms of U.S. policy towards its allies, U.S. policies towards trade, U.S. policies towards regional organizations. And so ironically, you know, the, the sharpest shift took place really on economic policy. The decision to pull out of the TPP, that was the break. There wasn't a, a shift between Bush and Obama. You know, Obama carried on the TPP negotiations from the Bush administration. So again, continuity rather than change. And in that context, uh, what I would see from a Biden administration is more a return to the norm. Uh, and what we saw yesterday in Tokyo was a defense department and the professionals you know, within the U.S. government continuing to a policy absent direct intervention or other, I would say, interference from the White House, just carry on with business like normal. And that's what I would anticipate. You would have that carry on as normal. Now, as to your first question as to whether there's more symbolism uh, than not, you know, symbolism matters. Um, the relationship with, uh, with Japan and with Australia has been heavily laden with symbolism. Uh, and, and both leaders, the previous prime minister in Japan, uh, uh, Prime Minister Abe, and now three successive uh, Australian prime ministers who have dealt with uh, President Trump, have handled that pretty well. They've played heavily on symbolism. Uh, in the meantime, however, while the bilateral of both those relationships may have gone well, the underpinning regional are multilateral approaches, which both Japan and, uh, and Australia depend on, have been severely weakened. Well, I might turn to you now, Frank, uh, with your thoughts on some of these issues, but I might also add that uh, you've spent a lot of your career working on China issues, um, so yeah. I'm hoping to get your perspective on why the US election matters in this sort of yeah. context of emerging strategic competition and some of the uh, challenges that the, the rise of China presents right. to regional states. Thanks. Thanks, Beck. And first, uh, let me thank you and Latrobe for hosting this today. I think this kind of conversation is just absolutely critical because uh, Australia is part of shaping the outcome and Australia has to live with the consequences of it. So it's a healthy exercise, I think, for all parties. And it's great to be with my old friend and colleague, uh, Gordon Flake as well. And, and Gordon, I found myself very much in agreement with you, the, the thrust of your remarks. I, I, let me just add a little uh, context perhaps uh, to it. Look, it so happens, this, this moment I think is defined, this moment meaning the decade or so we're in, is defined by, I think, two structural changes that allow the question you just posed back to be raised. One, one is the uh, continuing fade of post-Cold War architecture, that the alliance system and structure and individuals that successfully led a global coalition for decades 
quite successfully is they are as individuals they have left the scene but then questions have been raised about the cost or utility of american leadership o- obama raised some of these questions trump raised them more pugnaciously uh, and so what we've seen uh, i would say in the obama years and accelerated in the trump years is a uh, a reduction in consensus in the u.s about the value or utility of u.s global uh, leadership to a point where we're now almost at open architecture or point of redefinition. So that's one dynamic that's unfolding in this decade. The second dynamic is uh, Gordon noted and posed in your question is the rise of China. Because you'd say that, that that evolution in the first part that the US is uncertain about its global role and uncertain about what these historic commitments mean, that might not be meaningful if it isn't going to be uh, tested by the rise of China and China's new found uh, appetite for playing a role in the region and beyond. So that brings the question back uh, front and center. And I think what we've seen, this is where I very much agree with Gordon's point, is you have kind of a regression to the mean. You've got, I think, a growing consensus in the United States that those alliances, that that international outreach, the coalition building the U.S. undertook had enormous utility. And when there's not an immediate threat or a challenge, you might think, well, this is sort of frivolous or some some critics might say it's some kind of neo imperialism or God knows it's, it's, it's untoward or even sinister, but to say, uh, yeah, but on, in bad, when bad weather comes, you want to have friends. You want to have the ability to work with like-minded countries. You want to have the ability to collaborate and cooperate. It can be, uh, some of it can be formal military alliances, but I think that misses the point. The real point is that we have a pattern of cooperation and coordination and consultation. Most international activity takes place on sort of a come as you are basis. So what, what are we, what kind of world do we want to shape in East Asia? What kind of economic arrangements, as Gordon alluded to, do we want? What kind of mill-to-mill coordination do we want? What kind of education exchange do we want? And we look at uh, what's going on in ASEAN. We look at what's going on in the South Pacific Islands. And I say there's enormous scope for Australia to be playing a constructive role as those societies search for themselves about what, what kind of world they want to live in. Uh, so I'm... <laughs> I'm not, I'm not encouraged by the challenges we face, but I'm generally encouraged by the reaction in Canberra and the reaction in Washington to the challenges. And I think, and I think there is a demarcation with uh, Biden and Trump, that Trump is uh, very much of a unilateral school and skeptical in general of US playing an international leadership role. I think if you simply asked him, what's the value of the point? I think he would say there's more cost and benefit to this. And in a way it's, um, there is, there is something unfair about it because other countries aren't burden sharing properly and it, it absorbs the U.S. into conflicts that we don't need to be into. So it's, it's, ended, up, it's ended up being a net cost the United States playing this leadership role. So we need, to re, we need to reduce it or dial down or withdraw from these historic commitments. And I think Biden very much comes from uh, international school uh, where he says, no, these, these, historic, these historic relationships have value. Uh, we need to maintain them. Now, there's a lot of play in those words. And I suspect that if Biden wins, we will see in the first six or 12 months, we will see some tests. We will see tests from Iran. We will see tests from North Korea. We will see tests from Cuba. We'll see tests from Russia. We'll see tests from China. Some of these tests might be more obvious or more clumsy or, or foolish. Some of these tests might be quite sophisticated and at the margin. And because I think Biden, Biden has other impulses. He has an international impulse, but he's also a, a, a man of the traditional American center left, which is to say, let's emphasize process and legalisms. Let's make sure force is a last resort. Let's do what we can to avoid uh, that spectrum of behavior, uh, which by the way, I think is very healthy, but, but, but I, don't, I don't think he'll get through a presidency cost-free. I think, I think some of these tests will be of such a nature that he's going to have to uh, push back and find a way to defend U.S. interests. So can, just um, on Biden's approach, I mean, how would you uh, predict that he would approach specifically the challenge of China? Because we've seen, you know, the Trump administration has had a, a kind of um, bizarre approach to China. In, in some cases, you know, he's been, uh, Trump has been, President Trump has been quite uh, flattering towards um, Xi Jinping. On the other hand, there's uh, the trade wars and there's all of this kind of um, uh, challenges around uh, economic relationships. 
Do you see, do you predict that Biden uh, will take a more hardline approach or a more hawkish approach on China than what Obama did? Or um, do you see yeah. uh, him as kind of being a bit more of a, yeah. of a dove? I, I, look, that's it. That, there are a lot of questions about how he's going to calibrate this. But I can tell you, I can tell you from my talks with Biden's China team that I've said, it, look, it's not so much a question of China initially. It's a question of statecraft. If you believe in statecraft, you believe in using the instruments of state power and diplomacy to try to shape outcomes, which means that you have a sort of segmented array of activity. You're going to have a range of activities with China where there's reasonable uh, cooperation and you want to keep that going. Uh, a fair amount of trade takes place on a rules-based basis, uh, educational exchanges and so forth, uh, air flights. I mean, there's a lot of day-to-day uh, in, uh, -day investment. There's a lot of economic activity, which is quote unquote quite normal. There's a second set of activity which is competitive, and that might be some of the tech-based activity, 5G competition, and so forth. And then there's a third area where it's it's uh, uh, might much more directly competitive, and that tends to be the geopolitical issues, uh, which are more of a zero-sum game, South China Sea role, Taiwan security, and so forth. So, so but but if you're good at this, and I tend to think the Biden people are in that category, will be in that category. Uh, you allocate your efforts accordingly. You try to foster cooperation where you can, and you try to draw a line where your core interests are at stake. And you need to be able to, have, if you ask that question, you need to have the credibility with China leadership that they take you seriously. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and then if you, if you do that, though, you can have, so to speak, normal state-to-state -state relations with China. So that's my hope is the direction he's going to go. But how adept he is at that, whether or not he fully agrees with that, that's, that's history yet to be written. I might uh, turn the conversation back to you, Gordon. Uh, I was going to ask uh, KJ uh, about the, the sort of the Korea case study, which I think is quite interesting uh, and, and a good counterpoint for Australia because both Korea and Australia have alliance with the United States, but they also have strong trading relations with China that puts these middle powers in an interesting position in trying to manage the great power relations. So lucky for us, Gordon, you are a Korea expert and you uh, run a think tank in Australia. So I'm hoping that you might be able to give us your thoughts on um, what this election means for those two states and how uh, they, some of the similarities and differences in how they might go about managing these great power relationships. So Korea has faced two particular challenges in the relationship with the Trump administration over the last three and a half years. Number one is in its dealings with North Korea, and I'll get back to that in a second. And the second has been in the more transactional questions around who pays for U.S. troops in the, on the Korean Peninsula. Um, uh, to, to start with that one, President Trump, uh, to, to quote an old phrase, is someone who knows the cost of everything but the value of nothing, right? He's intensely focused on the cost for deploying U.S. troops. And Frank said this earlier, he, he's aware of you know, the balance of benefit without understanding the broader you know, context of alliances, et cetera. Uh, and I noticed we're just being joined by uh, KJ Song, Song Kyung Jin, who's going to tell me where I'm wrong in just a minute. KJ, I'm responding to Beck's uh, uh, question to me about the particular challenges of, of Korea in the relationship with the United States. And I've said there's two of them. Number one is the dealing with North Korea. And number two is the, the challenges around uh, status of, for not status of forces, but burden sharing, cost sharing agreements. Uh, in the case of Korea, uh, so things that happened that have actually stunned me. In January of this year, we had in the Wall Street Journal a sitting Secretary of Defense in the United States and a sitting Secretary of State in the United States pen an op-ed basically calling South Korea as an ally a deadbeat ally, not paying its bills, part of this negotiation to pressure. Now, in democratic societies, as you might imagine, um, there is certainly room you know, between the United States and all of its allies, be they in Europe or be they Japan, et cetera, to negotiate who pays for what. And those are always difficult, intense agreements. In democratic societies, to do that in public, you know, almost guarantees the inability uh, to, 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 to make progress. And accordingly, we have not made progress on those issues. The president himself on, in the middle of, of COVID-19 briefings will go out of his way to, to, to disparage South Koreans and their unwillingness to kind of pay up for 
you know, and one thing to ask for a 10% increase, but President Trump is on the record publicly re repeatedly asking for a five times increase, a quintupling of, of what South Korea pays to support U.S. troops stationed in South Korea. So that has been highly, highly controversial and one that a traditional administration, be it Democratic or Republican, would never engage in in such a public way. And so that one, I think, is one area where this coming election does pretend not an end to the dispute, but an end to the particular method of handling that dispute, which is relatively unique to this administration and this president. Now, the other question of North Korea, and again, uh, KJ can tell me where I'm wrong on this, is, 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 is one where at the start of the Trump administration, uh, 2017, 2018, there was a real concern of conflict. You know, if you recall back then, we were talking about little rocket man, President Trump threatening fire and fury such as the world has never known. Uh, the Trump administration by January of 2018 was talking about a bloody nose strategy towards North Korea, all the while not actually consulting with its ally, South Korea. And there was a genuine concern in Seoul that they may actually be involved in a conflict, potentially even initiated out of Washington, D.C., where they were not party to the process. Uh, and that led to a flurry of diplomatic activities, the Winter Olympics in February of 2018, the, the very high profile inter-Korean summit between President Moon Jae-in in South Korea and the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, which then led to starry eyes and, and the, the, the perspective of President Trump saying, I want one of those too. And that led to the Singapore summit, which was a lot more style of a summit. Frank was there, I presume in Singapore and, and saw a little bit of this up close. In the end, the fundamental issues were not resolved. You know, there was no progress towards denuclearization. In fact, there was no commitment towards denuclearization. What there was, was a declaration from this administration that peace is at hand, we're done, we've solved the problem and we haven't really dealt with it since, right? So those are long festering problems. They were handed from the Obama administration to the Trump administration with the warning that this would be one of the most important problems they faced. I anticipate that the handoff won't be as smooth, but when a Biden administration comes in, this will be one of the most important problems they face because the, the North Korean regime has not slowed down its development, its missile capabilities and its nuclear capabilities. And so that will be a fundamental security challenge for the region, uh, you know, regardless of the outcome uh, of the US election in some 28 days. So. Welcome, KJ. You've actually, KJ, sorry, you've actually come at the perfect time uh, to get your response to some of Gordon's comments. So I'm wondering if I'll uh, start you off just by asking you to assess the health of the bilateral relationship between uh, the United States and Korea under the Trump administration. Okay, hi. <laughs> I'm sorry, I came late. I was confused with the time difference. Okay, uh, well, um, I would say to begin with, um, there is no fundamental change in uh, the long-standing thinking of uh, most Koreans that the uh, Korea-US alliance is the linchpin of peace, security, and prosperity of the Republic of Korea and the Korean Peninsula since the end of the Korean War. So that's my initial statement. Of, of course, you know, uh, there have been slight adjustments and modifications from one administration to another, but nothing fundamental. But uh, uh, like Gordon said, the burden sharing of the military uh, spending has become um, an unhappy issue, unhappy issue, you know, during the uh, Trump administration, I guess both in uh, Korea and the States. Despite the fact that Korea spends 2.6% of its GDP um, on defense budget. The special measurement agreement, the so-called SMA, that determines the military burden sharing between the US and Korea is negotiated every five years in principle. But because of the hiccup, you know, in uh, 2019, uh, it became a one year temporary uh, agreement because of the differences uh, between the two parties. So uh, Korea eventually uh, paid 8.2% more uh, to uh, the co-sharing than uh, previous, than, uh, than pre previous years. And after its expiry this past March, 
new negotiations are still underway and is still protracted, mainly because of the disagreements about uh, the exorbitant demand from um, the US, an increase of close to 600% initially, which later came down to 150%, which is still huge. And Korea counter offered uh, an increase of 13%, which the United States flatly rejected. So uh, uh, this excessive demand isn't something that you, you, know, you would expect from your longstanding ally, right? And um, it has, in fact, hurt the sentiment of uh, Korean public. In fact, um, Korea's burden sharing has increased over the years, with the exception of uh, one year, 2005, when there was a cutback in uh, US troops stationed in Korea. So, but nonetheless, uh, people here think it's more Trump than the United States, the country itself, that, uh, hurt, that has hurt the alliance. And it has more to do with uh, Trump's, you know, uh, unprincipled, erratic, and transactional approach toward the military cost sharing and also alliance. And at the moment, uh, we are deeply, closely uh, monitoring the developments of uh, the US-Japan military burden sharing negotiations as it will provide some guide to us. So, so the question can be, are Koreans uh, unhappy? I mean, is Koreans unhappiness with this uh, developments uh, turning into some you know, negative feelings toward uh, uh, the US and Trump? Uh, the answer is yes and no. Uh, Pew Research Center's survey result last month uh, uh, gives a very interesting picture and even contradictory somewhat to the general belief in the sense that most number of Korean respondents think of the US as the global leader. 77%, followed by uh, the uh, Japanese respondents, 53%. Uh, by the way, this survey was taken part in uh, by uh, nationals from uh, 13 US allies. The, the same survey result revealed that Korean participants hold the most favorable view of the US, 59%. And for Australians and Japanese respondents, are you curious to know? Only 33% of Australian respondents and 41% of Japanese respondents have a good image of uh, the US. Uh, of course, like other nationals, uh, Koreans' confidence in Trump was, was much lower than their confidence in the United States as a nation. This is just you know, one survey, uh, but, but I think it's indicating a gap in perceptions between the US and Korea. I, I don't know if it's a gap in perception between bureaucrats and between bureaucratic apparatus of the two nations, but, but the fact of the matter is that there is a gap. So I think uh, it's pointing to the need for more strategic dialogue between the two countries. Can I just um, sort of pick up on, on that? I mean, public opinion uh, is, is one thing, and, and even in Australia, public opinion towards the US and the US alliance remains quite strong. Uh, uh, but what about kind of elite opinion in, in Korea? Do you think that um, there would be a preference towards a Biden presidency, given all of the sorts of challenges that have cropped up in during the Trump administration in the, in the Korea-US relationship? Uh it's hard to say. Um, well, uh, it's hard to say because people uh, disliked the erratic uh, transactional nature of uh, the Trump presidency. Mm -hmm. So they like to see some, you know, principles that uh, the U.S. government used to carry. So in that respect, uh, people would like to see uh, uh, the Biden presidency. But on the other hand, because of this of uh, Trump's uh, erratic and transactional nature, the pressure from the uh, 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 U.S. government regarding um, uh, taking the stance between uh, the United States and China 
for instance, has not been as strong as expected. So there, there, is, uh, there are two camps of thoughts in uh, Korea about the uh, uh, next uh, U.S. presidency. Interesting. I would say. Well, I, uh, before we head to q and I might um, just direct a question to you, Frank. I mean, you're the former U.S. ambassador to Singapore. You're currently in Singapore. I'm going to ask you a somewhat impossible question because Asia is such a diverse uh, area. Uh, but do you get a sense of uh, how leaders in Asian states might have a preference towards Trump or Biden? Do you have a sense that some countries might actually prefer that Trump remains in power as opposed to having a change? Yeah, yeah, and you're right. It's a range of views. Uh, I think they really like Biden for the fact that he's methodical and even tempered and you know, just as a, as a good interlocutor, a predictable interlocutor, so that's respected with Biden. But but uh, Trump likes throwing punches, which isn't necessarily always focused toward a goal. But I think they, I think there's a lot of respect for the fact that he confronted China and really rattled China, and that other U.S. presidents had shied away from that. As KJ indicated, well, he confronted. Korea in some respects, I mean, confronts everybody. So it's not always a healthy or a useful discipline, but at least I think you'd sign people saying that China needed a shock. China needed to have somebody uh, push back and send a signal that their behavior wasn't acceptable and they liked the fact that Trump did that. As I say, Trump, Trump is a master pianist, but there's only one note on his piano. I mean, he only, he only can generate friction and friction is his management tool. And you say, well, that's certainly welcome where friction is needed, but, but friction as an operating principle probably costs you more than it gets you. It's sort of like uh, trying to steer your car by using your horn. I mean, after a while, it just fatigues everybody and you're, you're viewed as just sort of a loud, angry fellow. So, uh, but, but, there is, but there is at least that segment of respect for the fact that he has an appetite for uh, for that friction and is willing to engage China in a way that incurs costs. Beck, can I just rephrase something that Frank just said, just because I, I agree with him completely, but one way to look at that is that the Trump administration foreign policies had one guiding principle, and that is the power of unpredictability. Frank called it friction. <laughs> but you heard the president over and over again in the campaign and the speech after speeches, you know, saying how much he values you know, setting people you know, off their, their expectations. And that actually has worked to a certain degree in terms of China, in terms of how they respond, what they will. Uh, where that doesn't work, you know, is with allies. Where that doesn't work is with international institutions and standards and norms. And so there is the fundamental tension, right? Um, uh, so again, I just appreciate the way Frank phrased it, but it's a question of whether or not you, 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 you really want to, pursue that type of approach. And, and if, I'll speak for myself. The last three and a half years have been not just dizzying, but exhausting in terms <laughs> instability on that front. I don't think you're alone there. <laughs> it's hard keeping up with all of these new developments that are constantly in the news cycle. Uh, but we'll turn to Q&A now. Uh, and so if you've got a question, please pop it in the Q&A function, which is towards the bottom of your screen. So I might stick with you, uh, Gordon, for this one. Uh, with a calculation of 20,000 lies told and counting starting from Inauguration Day, what will Trump's legacy be for other political leaders around the world and a growing lack of accountability and what can be done to reverse this trend? Uh, I'll start with Gordon, but um, Frank and KJ, you might like to um, respond to that after as well. So, Gordon? Yeah. Um, as someone, you know, from the United States who, who despite naturalizing as an Australian citizen, has kept my American citizenship, so I'm a dual citizen, I, I think there's been nothing more painful for me over the last three and a half years than the declining credibility of the United States. Um, and, and that, that just, I mean, we're seeing this play out minute by minute in Washington, DC right now, uh, where it's just bizarre where the, the, the behavior of journalists attempting to cover North Korea 
is now being mirrored by the behavior of journalists attempting to cover the White House. You know, two days ago, we had the president tweeting out different pictures of him hard at work in, in, in Sir Walter Reed Medical Center, you know, where people had to go and look at the metadata behind the picture to find out they were in two different rooms taking 10 minutes apart, one with a jacket on, one without. There's pure propaganda, right? Uh, and so that has been disturbing for me, that declining reputation of the United States. And again, I'll go back to my overall theme, looking at this from an Australian perspective, particularly when it comes to American leadership of the global system, the liberal rules-based order, the liberal international system, which was largely led by and constructed under the leadership of the United States. To see that deterioration has had long-term consequences. And so, yes, the domestic lies are important, right? Uh, but the long-term reputational damage is there. The, the, the caveat I'd add to that is that most countries have been, you know, hedging their bets, basically trying to manage this time under the assumption that this was an aberration uh, and that the United States will come back, right? Uh, if President Trump is against expectations reelected in 28 days, I think you're going to see, you know, a far more dramatic change in the policies of every country represented in the discussion today, but throughout the world, because they can no longer hedge. They can no longer explain this away as Dr. Song just did as an aberration, as just kind of a temporary thing with, with Donald Trump. Let me add just one tiny voice of optimism in that. And this is very important to note. The vast and overwhelming majority of what I would consider to be the Republican foreign policy establishment in trade, in security, in diplomacy, signed on to never Trump letters in 2016. Today, there's a growing list of, of well over 200 you know, former national security officials at the most senior levels who have signed on again to say, this is not a, that really bodes well for the future. They haven't gone anywhere. What that means is I think there's a potential, assuming that, that Vice President Biden wins the election, that you will have a degree of bipartisan consensus around American foreign policy and around the need to rebuild American credibility that you've not had for a long period of time. You know, because, you know, those, you know, again, the overwhelming majority have staked out their claims early on. And there's probably no one more qualified to react to that comment or confirm or deny it than Frank, who himself would be among those senior officials. So, Well, I might hand it over to you, Frank, for your response. Look, look, any president's legacy is quite a complicated question, and this can be redefined over the decades back. I, but I would say what strikes me immediately about Trump, where people might rate him favorably if they're so inclined, is that he was willing to challenge the established order and that every every society needs a contrarian voice to, to play that role. So that would be the constructive way of putting it. But I think that's that might be true, but I think it's overwhelmed or overshadowed by the negative dimensions of that, which is he is reflexively contrarian or reflexively hostile to the established order. And the established order actually had considerable value in, in our relationships and our practices and our collaborative ability. It wasn't done out of foolishness. It wasn't done out of altruism. It was done because it's intelligent uh, international behavior. Uh, so simply to say I'm against all of that and to do it reflexively uh, make, makes him look ham-fisted. And if you have if you have friction without strategy, you're just left with friction. So I think he's he's going to that's going to be his legacy, uh, not not a not a positive one. But I do think, as Gordon said, there's elasticity, there's ability to rebound, and you know it's events, dear boys, events. There are things that will take place around the world that will attach greater value to collaborating with the United States. The United States will get back in the game. So I don't think any of these things are permanent, but there's a price you pay for this deterioration and we're, we're paying it now. Mm. Okay, Jay, I saw you nodding. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, I do hope we can soon say that the Trump administ administration was indeed an aberration as Gordon said. And, and I uh, rest assured uh, the United States is the country that has the most elasticity and resilience. So once uh, the uh, 
once we have a new administration in place, I think the U.S. will go get back to normal as soon as possible. Can I caveat that conversation, though? Uh, I think if you look at opinion poll after opinion poll for the last three and a half years, almost every country in Asia has reacted negatively to the election of President Trump. Uh, and perceptions of the United States have declined accordingly. So, so KJ mentioned those polls outright, with one very important exception, and that is India. You know, we ourselves did a, 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 a what we called an Indo-Pacific opinion poll on America's role in the Indo-Pacific over you know, several years, 2016 and 2017. In 2017, when we last did it, we triggered a very specific question about American leadership, and, and every country had declined, declined. And then we asked the same question by just putting in the word, now that Donald Trump is president. And by including that phrase in every other country, the de decline was more precipitous. Within the exception of India, it went up. And there's several reasons for that. And I think Frank has put his finger on one of them. Right now, India is, is initially, that was about willingness to confront Islam and Pakistan. In recent years, it's about a willingness to openly confront China. You know, uh, and, you know, some some strongly populist tends within India itself. But it's, there is an outlier a bit in the in the in the in the region. And that has been India. And we should note that. I think that's interesting. Yeah, because. Okay, yeah, because there's a uh, <laughs> because there's a proxy competition going on between India and Pakistan. Pakistan close to China and India getting close closer to the U.S. But it's also important to contextualise what's going on in the United States in a global sort of rise in populism as mm. well, which the India example can kind of tap into there. Uh, but we've got some more questions. I might stick with you, KJ, because this one is about uh, North Korea. How uh, stable North is the regime in North Korea in light of the reported developments? And is there um, dissension or and if there is dissension, would this reflect a view that essential economic developments will require moving towards some accommodation with the outside world? So do you see um, things in North Korea perhaps changing in the future or will we sort of continue on uh, in the same, same sort of patterns um, as what we're experiencing at the moment? Well, I would put it this way. When we hear Kim Jong-un declares that the North Korea is completely and fully and verifiably denuclearized, then we can trust that there is a change going on and that's as, uh, and that, uh, in that nation <laughs> until and unless we hear that confirmation and we hear, uh, we get the confirmation. Uh, I don't think there will be any meaningful, substantial change in North Korea. And what's most important to Kim Jong-un is keeping his regime intact, that he uh, remains the leader of the country forever. Mm -hmm. So I might pass the next question on to you, Frank. Uh, how might China test Joe Biden when he comes to office if he wins? I think this is a, a really important question because I, uh, you were talking about establishing yeah. lines. Uh, yeah. So um, how might the Biden administration respond to such tests as well? Look, China wants to send a message to its near abroad, its neighbours and the Asia-Pacific community. U.S. friendship and presence comes and goes, but we're here forever. We're here forever, so you need to reach some kind of uh, 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 modus vivendi with us. You need to figure out how you're going to fit into our way of doing things. And to the extent the U.S. is active in the region, it it denies that allegation or it minimizes that thrust of communication. So for China to have any kind of encounter that illustrates that it's the dominant or the better partner or more permanent partner is very much in its interest. And I think, I think you start on minor points because you're not looking for a fight. You're looking just to send a signal. So you might, you might sink a Vietnamese fishing boat. You might step up uh, Diaoyutai Sakaku incursions. You might, what you're trying to say is United States, an alliance with America doesn't get you any place anyhow. And they're sort of fair weather friends. So they can't shape the outcome in Asia, but we can. 
So you need to reach an accommodation with us. They could be more, I could see them saying, you know what, we're not pushing sovereignty in the South China Sea at this moment, but we think there's some important fishing policies there. And what we're going to do is declare a three month or six month hiatus on fishing in the South China Sea. This is for environmental reasons. This is in accordance with some white paper someplace. Uh, it has nothing to do with sovereignty, uh, but we're going to enforce it. So you're saying this is very interesting because now you have a synthetic sovereignty. It very much is part of sovereignty, and but they're using environmental issues as a bit of a camouflage, but they're not saying it's our sovereign territory. They're just saying what we're gonna do is push people around and you have to respond to our preferences in the region because we're the military power in the region. So they could easily, I think, come up, devise initiatives such as that, that then become a test for the United States. Do we push back against that? Do we enforce something? Are the, are the Filipino fishing boats really going to have competence in the U.S. that we're always going to sort of be there? Uh, how is this going to end? So, but I, I don't see China standing still. I don't see it. I don't see it saying we had a good run and we're just not going to push any of our issues for the next four years. There might also be implications for um, U.S. allies if, <laughs> if China decides to push the Biden administration, what might be asked of states like Australia or Japan or South Korea in pushing back? Yeah, can I just offer a comment? I just see a lot of competition in the ASEAN. This, this is sort of soft power or civic competition, if you will. So it's not necessarily friction-filled, but I could see, for example, in ASEAN and in Indonesia, in the South Pacific Islands, we know China's very active in that region. I could see, for example, China going to the health ministries of Papua New Guinea or Pacific Island states saying, guess what? We've pioneered an e-health app that we will let you have for free. It has enormous health benefits for helping your population monitor temperature and symptoms and reporting it in. It gives you some big data capabilities. And we'll just give this to you because, and it'll prove it'll prove your health output, right? I would, I would look with that with great, great skepticism if I were Australia or Washington. They might do the same thing with e-learning. We're here to provide every single kid in the Solomon Islands an online and a webinar high school education in English. Uh, I don't know if Australia already offers it, but the point is there are some interesting things to do with e-health and e-learning where China has some enormous strengths and, and I would expect it to be making uh, offers and inroads uh, in your neighbourhood in the next few years. Now, I will turn to you, Gordon, but we do have a question that is on Australia specifically. So maybe you can kind of address the question as well as respond to Frank's comments. Uh, but basically the question is, what does all of this mean for Australia in particular as an ally of the U US and a, quite a dependable um, ally of the United States as well? So what Frank has described is not just what China could do, but in some respects is what they are doing already. But the point is, that's not all they're doing, right? They've also, you know, if, if they were really smart, they would do only that uh, and then win over a lot of hearts and minds, if you will, in the region. But the reality is, despite this historic opportunity for China, where the Trump administration, again, pulling out of TPP is basically giving them an open playing field done everything they can to, you know, where China really could have made hay. China could have taken advantages like you wouldn't believe. Instead, what they have done is really angered almost every other country in the world. You try, try, try to name a country today that is not entirely bought and paid for, that doesn't have significant problems with, with, with China. Canada, Germany, the UK, India, Mongolia, Korea, Japan, Southeast Asia, Indonesia. It takes an awful lot to get the Indonesians worked up, right? Uh, and, and they have done that. And so I go back to what I started out our conversation with today. You know, what happened yesterday in the quad was not about U.S. outreach. It was about Chinese overreach. Uh, and, and I see little in the Xi Jinping administration that suggests to me that under Xi, these wolf warrior diplomats, the diplomats are going to scale back and do something which was something that Frank had to deal with a decade ago, which was a much more sophisticated, low-key, less ham-handed approach to the region, right? And so, to be honest, China has been its own worst enemy, and there's no better example of that than Australia. Australia, given our deep trading relationships with China, has been predisposed to maintain that relationship at almost all costs, right? And yet, in the last you know seven months, you know, the extreme response on the part of China to uh, 
the Australian calls for an independent investigation into the origins of COVID and a range of other issues have led to this dramatic shift in public opinion about China that is echoed almost everywhere else around the globe. So that's the China that we we're dealing with today. And that's really driven by domestic developments in Beijing and driven by domestic considerations in Beijing, not by China's interest. What Frank described is what China should do. <laughs> I don't know that they're, they're, they're smart enough to follow Frank's uh, nice roadmap there. <laughs> Well, KJ, I might bring you in here because I saw you nodding Right. Korea has right. similar issues in terms of being sanctioned, you know, getting economic sanctions applied to them uh, and so on. Right. But, you know, uh, one thing, one difference between Australia and Korea is that you are far apart. You have a natural barricade at the big sea between you and China. But for us, between us and China, what we have, the North Korea, North Korea. Uh, the, uh, you know, uh, uh, this China question, a quarter of our entire trade is done with China. And, um, you know, uh, it's, it's almost double that of uh, the United States. And we know it's uh, risky uh, to have a, uh, heavy de dependence on uh, a particular country, on single country, whether it be, you know, China, the U.S., or any other country. So we're tr we've been trying to diversify uh, our trade and also our trading partners for, for quite some time, in fact. Um, uh, but the problem is uh, 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 diversify our markets, uh, especially uh, strengthening its, our cooperation with ASEAN and India, but uh, the problem is um, their markets are not big enough as of now to replace China or to reduce Korea's dependence on China significantly and uh, immediately. But the 2016 that incident and the subsequent following uh, brutal retaliation by China left a deep scar and um, doubt in the minds of the Koreans. So, so I think China is presented with a homework uh, to amend, to mend uh, its broken image and uh, doubt about China in the minds of uh, Koreans. And overall, I think Korea needs to uh, upgrade, step up its effort uh, to further strengthen um, the uh, existing uh, security alliance, and at the same time, promoting uh, uh, promoting stable uh, relations in the region as well, which is very tough. <laughs> <laughs> we have time for one more question and very quick 30-second responses, and this is quite a controversial question, uh, and you probably want more time, but I can't give you more time. But one of our um, audience members has asked if America is approaching or can now be referred to as a failed state. Uh, so, Gordon, I might start with you. Ask me that question on November 4th. <laughs> <laughs> Very succinct uh, answer there, Gordon. Frank, how do you feel about that? Uh, I'd say America has a compulsion to uh, air its dirty laundry in public in as flamboyant or theatrical a fashion as possible. So it's easy to misread or misunderstand the U.S. And we saw this chronically a challenge in totalitarian systems where the Soviet Union would look at some problem in the U.S. and say the whole society is dysfunctional. Nazi Germany would look at problems in the U.S. and say the whole society is dysfunctional. So it's easy to come to that conclusion. We see the cost of an open society, an opinionated society, a vibrant, uh, uh, you know, highly individualized society, but you don't always see the benefit of it uh, when you're looking through that kind of lens. So my answer is no, it's not. Although I think we're at a bit of a nadir uh, right now because we've usually have these problems where we had leadership which would kind of guide us through it. I just think we, we're missing the right kind of leadership at the moment. And KJ, last word goes to you. Uh, okay, what we see and what we hear these days about the US is just unbelievable, beyond belief. But like I said before, the United States has a unique capacity, capability to recuperate from the worst. 
And I think that there are a lot of states that, are, including Australia, that are banking on that being the case. Uh, but I would like to take the opportunity now to thank our panellists and to thank you, the audience, for watching this joint Latrobe Asia Perth US Asia Centre event. Uh, this webinar has been recorded. If you've registered for the event, you will be emailed the links when they are ready. Uh, so please follow Latrobe Asia on Twitter, at uh, Latrobe Asia, or join our mailing list to find more details for online events and Latrobe Asia publications. And please also follow Perth US Asia Centre on Twitter, at Perth US Asia, or join their mailing list to find uh, details about their excellent publications and events. So thanks again, Frank, KJ, Gordon, for joining us. That was a fascinating conversation.